Hey, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, where we talk about all that and then some. I am the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book. So go on out and pick that up because it's sort of the precursor to this conversation. Now, if you found your way to this podcast and you're new to the conversation, you know, you probably found us because you're pregnant and you're looking for some solid prenatal information. Or maybe you're looking for some insider information on best techniques to survive labor and delivery. Um, Yep, I'm a labor and delivery nurse, was for 20 years, and I've I've got a few good techniques. Um, Or maybe you heard from somebody that there's this lady who wrote this book, Common Sense Pregnancy, and she has a practical, usable, less catastrophic take on normal pregnancy than you're going to find in a lot of other pregnancy books. And that... You know, they'll tell you that I talk to women about the issues that are above and beyond what takes place in the prenatal office or labor room. We talk about all kinds of things here. And this week, the only thing worth talking about is politics. Now, like many of you, I am glued today to the radio and TV for Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony in the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing for his uh, nomination to the Supreme Court. Now, like many of you, and in fact, I'd wager to guess probably most of you, I too have experienced many events in my life that range from mild sexual harassment to full sexual assault. And I too remember parties like the ones she describes, ones where, you know, kids were drunk, boys were disorderly and disgusting and thought nothing of a grab or a grope or something worse. You know, at as girls, we kind of grew up expecting it. We normalized it. And even though I kind of believe we were all collectively traumatized by it, there really seemed to be nothing we could do about it unless we avoided, you know, social, educational, employment, or basically any public engagement. Just about everyone I know knows on a cellular level that there really isn't any place in the world where we can expect to be totally safe from assault or harassment, that there's really no time in our lives as women when, you know, we can just be without the potential for that kind of hassle, not in childhood, not in high school, not in college, not at a party, not at our jobs, not at our churches, not in early adulthood, not during our mothering years, not during our working years, not in the delivery room, not really anywhere ever. And that's how we as women move about the world. That's how we live our lives. We're on guard for that moment, or we're recovering from that moment or that event And you never really know when it'll happen again, but you know, it probably will. There's going to be a cat call or there's going to be a grab or there's going to be a shove against the wall or there's going to be something. It's collective trauma. And today while watching Dr. Ford recount her assault, I for one was ill remembering. And as so many of us know, those memories remain with us physically and inside our bodies forever. And sometimes The trauma comes back during moments like today or other moments when we're forced to remember our own experiences. We heard her story today and we remembered our own and we remember other vulnerable, vulnerable moments when we knew we were essentially powerless and alone with an angry assailant. 
we all felt that Dr. Ford spoke for us because most of us will never, ever come forward and demand our say. We can't handle the consequences like she did. Dr. Ford will now go down in history as one of the bravest women we've seen in our generation. To say she took it for the team is nowhere near enough. She took it for our gender. She took it. She took it with dignity. And I, for one, it brought me to tears on her behalf. Now, how does this relate to the pregnancy and parenting part of this podcast conversation we're having here? Oh, mamas, it relates a lot, a lot. Now, as I've said, trauma remains with us, even when we consider ourselves healed. It lives in our memories and our bodies and our relationships. It shapes the way we make our decisions and, you know, about our bodies and our lives and our healthcare choices and where we go and what we do. And it impacts our stress stress levels on a deep down level. We're not even conscious of it. But everyone I know is on some level impacted by it. And we carry these decisions and that stress into our pregnancies and our prenatal care, which are, you know, already among the most vulnerable experiences of a woman's life, especially considering the nature of our health care, which is, you know, very top-down authoritative and tell women what to do kind of experience. It's a time when our bodies are examined, probed, squeezed, felt, invaded, poked, you know, mostly with our consent. Of course, we're the ones who go to the doctor's office or the labor suite, but still it's going to happen. None of us much like it. And it's triggering for a lot of women, a lot of women, especially when it comes to labor and birth, you know, because it's a very vulnerable time in your life when that part of your body is on display again. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of fear. We don't know the outcome. We don't know what's going to happen to us. It's dangerous for a lot of women. Now, when a labor team, the nurses, the doctor, the anesthetist, you know, the people that are going to be working with a woman that has experienced sexual assault, you know, when they know that that's been her experience, we're deliberately more careful, respectful, and intentional and protecting that woman's privacy and comfort to the best of our ability. But as was mentioned in opening statements during Dr. Ford's testimony, one in three women report having been sexually assaulted in her lifetime. But almost, I think they said almost 70% of women will not report it. So one in three women we know about, but 70% aren't going to say anything about it. And we won't tell most people in our lives for any number of reasons. You know, partly because we don't want to have to remember, we don't want to have to answer people's ignorant questions, we don't want to have to defend ourselves, subject ourselves to their opinions, and ultimately, you know, involve other people in our trauma. We don't have to tell. But that means that as nurses, many, many, many more of our patients are trauma victims than we will ever know. So how should that impact our care? Well, It should mean that informed consent, which is the ultimate decision-making power of what happens to our bodies, it's informed consent should be the guiding standard of care. It's got to be more than just, here, sign your consent form. We're going to do this procedure for you. This is, these are the things that could happen. If you don't do it, you're, you know, something horrible could happen. That's not informed consent. Informed consent is 
allowing the woman to get all the information and make her own decision. No bullying, no manipulation, no intimidation, nada. Education, information, conversation, yes. But informed consent means that the patient is informed and has the power of consent. She also has the power to say, no, stop. Now, how many women have you spoken to who have said their doctor made them have an induction, made them have a test they didn't necessarily want, made them have a C-section? Consent. So yeah, I bet the women signed that form. But these women may have felt powerless to make a different choice. So they submitted to things that happened to their bodies that they may or may not have wanted to have happen because there was nothing else they felt they could do at that moment. Now, am I equating consent in the labor room with consent in the bedroom? These are entirely different contexts in which women have not historically been in charge of their own bodies. Is it the same thing? Let's talk about consent, what it actually is. And for that, I'm going to go to the dictionary. As a noun, consent is permission for something to happen or agreement to do something. As a verb, to consent means to give permission for something to happen. Now, for too many women in labor units, consent isn't part of their experience. I wrote something a half dozen years ago or so about birth trauma, and I'd like to read it to you today. And I wrote it for Fit Pregnancy. But I kind of have to start out by saying I disagree a little bit with what I said back then, because it's built on stating that I don't think we should call birth trauma um, birth rape. And now... Half a dozen years later, at this point in history, knowing just how prevalent all of this is, I'd say, sister, you call it what you want. I take back my opinion on that, and I have no reason in the world to want to silence any woman from calling her experience like it is. I'm sorry for that. Here's the article, though, because there's stuff in there that I, I think might still resonate. It's kind of a look at the ripple effect that comes when women don't trust people with their bodies and rights. So here's the article. There's a term being battled, batted about right now that I find very disturbing, birth rape. It's describing some truly traumatic birth experiences where women felt disempowered, bullied, and abused by their healthcare providers. They felt they had no choice but to submit to medical procedures done entirely against their will. They felt violated, betrayed, shamed, and terrified. They experienced their births as violence perpetrated on their bodies by people they'd trusted. These birth experiences were horrible, but were these women raped? No. They may have been abused, manipulated, manipulated and victims of malpractice, but they were not victims of sexual violence. That's what rape means, and in deep respect for women who have been raped, I think the term birth rape is inappropriate. Instead, I'd use the word birth trauma. The rage, despair, and feelings of violation some women experience after a traumatic, out-of-control birth are valid and powerful, but aren't the same feelings women experience after rape. Over the many years I've worked in labor and delivery, I've witnessed a few births where a heartless control freak doctor ignored his patient's wishes and rights to privacy and respect, bullying her into following his own agenda. I've seen a doctor or two treat patients with disturbing behavior, ranging from clueless insensitivity to unkindness to abject cruelty. I've seen doctors disregard courtesy, modesty, and informed consent. I've seen some implement interventions without telling patients what they're doing or why. I've seen patients cry when they felt abused by something some jerk doctor did. 
I've seen it, but I haven't seen it very often. And that's saying something because I've seen thousands of births. Those jerk doctors usually get their karma returned somehow. One doctor got sued time and again for malpractice and abuse and was eventually fired by the hospital. Another doctor was such a jerk, no other physicians would take call shifts for him. He wound up in a solo practice, on call every day, night, and weekend. It ruined his marriage, alienated him from his children, and cost him the respect of the medical community. Karma, dude, it's powerful stuff. More often, I see doctors, midwives, and nurses bend over backward to supply the best, most compassionate care possible. I see them working as teammates with their patients and families. Most health care providers are in it because they have hearts of gold, crystal clear minds, and the best intentions. I've also seen patients come into labor with very rigid ideas about how their births will go and what they will and won't allow to happen. I'm thinking about a woman who came to our unit years ago, dead set on 100% natural birth. She labored at home until her contractions were strong and her water broke in a thick brown puddle on her bed. She started bleeding a little too heavily right after that, and her husband insisted she come to the hospital for a labor check. When her doctor examined her and told her she was only two centimeters dilated and her baby didn't feel like she was in the right position, the patient accused the doctor of lying. She refused an ultrasound and fetal heart monitoring and demanded a new doctor. When a midwife and the OB chief of staff consulted with her, she refused their care too. The midwife had a doula on her staff come in to explain why her birth plan couldn't work for her safely. The midwife wanted to touch her abdomen and listen to her baby with a Doppler, a handheld device that amplifies baby's heartbeat, and still she refused. No matter what interventions they suggested, she refused, convinced her care providers were out to get her. Her husband, on the other hand, wanted the midwife, doctor, chief of staff, and anyone else the hospital could provide to find out what was wrong with his baby. Even he couldn't persuade his wife to accept medical care, despite the fact that she was bleeding heavily and oozing meconium. Finally, when he begged in tears to please, please let the doctor do an ultrasound, she agreed, though resentfully and begrudgingly. The ultrasound determined her baby was in an awkward breech position, her placenta was separating from the uterine wall, and at two centimeters with a first baby, she was hours or days away from a vaginal delivery. The doctors advised an immediate C-section. This did not go over well. The poor woman was terrified and furious that the doctors weren't honoring her no-intervention birth plan. She accused them of bullying her into a C-section she felt strongly she didn't need. The doctors respectfully and thoroughly examined, explained their recommendations and concerns. Her husband flat out yelled at her. It wasn't until the bleeding got heavier that this woman finally got scared enough. All of a sudden, she got it. She and her baby were in deep, deep trouble. It wasn't her doctors who weren't honoring her birth plan. It was her baby and her body. After the C-section, her baby spent several days in the NICU. The woman remained angry about what happened, but gradually realized while her experience had been traumatic, out of control, and against her wishes, it wasn't because anyone had victimized her. Shit happens. Birth trauma happens and sometimes post-traumatic stress disorder. Reconciling what's happened to your body with what you thought would happen is a complicated emotional challenge that requires time and attention to process. I've taken care of patients who've been raped. In all the hospitals I've worked, there are policies set in place to create the safest, most respectful, and gentlest birth experience possible, not just for patients who've been raped, but for all mothers. 
We supply extra special care whenever needed. In the end, it's the birth process itself that garners the most respect. Sometimes it's powerful, overwhelming, and yes, even violent. But that's not rape, that's trauma. There's a big difference. Let's choose our words wisely and with due respect to the legions of women who know what the word rape really means. So that's what I wrote back then. And the woman that I describe, I don't know if she was a trauma survivor. I don't know if she'd been sexually assaulted, but she sure had the PTSD that you often see. And she had a deep need to control what happened to her body that I seriously understand. So is birth trauma the same as birth rape? Honestly, the words aren't, it's not important to me anymore. The fact that women in this world are so traumatized is what is important. And the fact that it impacts not only their delivery experiences, but the experiences of, you know, the the people that are with them, their babies, their husbands, their birth teams, their families, it affects us all. And I believe that the political shit show we're living through right now is part of the trauma. At least it was for me this morning while I watched Dr. Ford's testimony and Dr. Kavanaugh's angry rebuttal. But I also believe it's part of the rupture that has to take place to let all the disgusting ooze out and let the fresh air in. We have to look at this closely. The way women are treated in this country on every level, from childhood throughout our lives. And we have to make times up count. Now, I'm recording this the day before the Senate is set to vote on whether Kavanaugh moves out of the Senate confirmation hearing and up for a vote by the total Senate for a seat on the Supreme Court. Why does this matter to you, the newly pregnant woman listening to my podcast? It matters a lot. Do you want a man who may have demonstrated abject disregard and disrespect for multiple women to make decisions about a, about women's lives at the Supreme Court level? Do you want them this judge to at least be thoroughly evaluated, investigated? These are the decisions that become laws about our health care, our incomes, our employment opportunities, our education, our environment, our you know all of it, everything. This very directly impacts our lives. And because this is a lifetime appointment for a Supreme Court judge, it could impact our lives for generations. It could impact impact our children's lives, our grandchildren's lives. Whatever happens next, we'll see. But here's the thing. This is why voting in the elections on November 6th for senators who support women is so important. Do it. Vote for women who will help all of us. Trauma survivors, rape survivors, mothers, patients, parents, educators, doctors, students, scientists, all of us, everyone. To live our lives safely, with dignity and respect, without fear of violence. It's not a lot to ask, but at this moment in history, your vote means everything. Everything. Vote mamas. Vote dads. Today's testimony for many of us will be the only chance we'll ever get for the world to hear our story and for one or one very similar, and the women of the world are now holding our breaths to find out if the Senate cares at all about what we heard. That's it for today, folks. We'll talk more about this again. 